gives to Nick, open three, takes it, makes it, Nick Emery! Rolls it past the defender, gets into the 18, shoots it, near post, scores! Emery Walker! This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. And now, here's Greg Rubel. Good evening, Cougar Nation. After a long few months away, welcome back inside Studio 2 at the BYU Broadcasting Building on the Brigham Young University campus in Provo, Utah. For the first show on our second season of Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. I am your host, Greg Rubel, and I thank you for tuning in either live on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, org, and the BYU Radio app, or on demand via download or podcast on our Behind the Mic show page at byuradio.org. Once again this year, from August through March, I'll be with you every Wednesday evening from 6 to 7 p.m. Mountain Time, visiting with BYU Cougars, past and present, current and former players, coaches, and administrators, some household names and some perhaps less familiar to you, but I'm confident that you'll enjoy my conversations with all of them as we get to know them better and uh, beyond the X's and O's, some of the most interesting and memorable BYU sports personalities to come through Provo. And to kick off our 2018-19 season of shows and to recognize the fact that BYU football training camp begins and will last this entire month, we are giving you a football-themed show tonight and in all of our August shows on all five Wednesdays. This evening, our debut edition of Behind the Mic Season 2 features BYU Director of Athletics Tom Holmo and Head Football Coach Kalani Sitake. And just as he did leading off our first show of last season, Tom Holmo is once again our first lead guest for our second season of shows. Tom, thanks again for joining me behind the mic. My pleasure. I'm very excited for the kickoff of this season and tonight to kick off your show. Now, I'm going to consider tonight's interview uh, part two of the conversation we had last season when we talked a lot about your upbringing and what brought you to Provo to play. Uh, Your BYU playing days were a lot of last year's interview and the influence of Lavelle Edwards, of course, on your life and a bit about the challenges of your current job tonight. I wanted to kind of fill in a few of the blanks uh, that we may have left unfilled last year, most of them involving your professional football career as a player and a coach. Now, you left BYU in 1982 as an all-conference defensive back. You picked off a ton of passes in your Cougar career, memorable touchdown score between the hedges at Georgia as a senior, and then you went right into the NFL as a fourth-round draft pick of the 49ers back in, in 1983. Now, nowadays, Tom, we know so much about the draft process and the combine and what goes into getting selected uh, by an NFL team. Compare the process now to what it was when the 49ers called your name. Well, I think it was always important even back then, but nowadays you just with all the technology and the number of scout gurus and draft gurus, they're like working on the draft year round. I didn't really even think I would get drafted until uh, early in the I think early in the season. Uh, Dick Felt, my defensive backfield coach, said, hey, you know, if you have a good season, you're going to get drafted. I said, what? I'm going to get drafted? He says, yeah, if you play like you did last year, you're going to get drafted. And so that was my first indication, hey, let's go. Let's make this happen. And the thing that was biggest difference is there's one NFL combine. Back when I was playing, there were four. And I went to three of them. And the one I didn't go to was made up of the West Coast teams, San hmm. Diego, Seattle, San Francisco, and L.A. and Oakland. And, uh, Why did you not do that one? Because the 49ers called me a couple days before and canceled me to come. <laughs> so they had teams would be the would be the teams that would represent you since it was in the West, right? And they were the ones that were taking care of me. And they said, "Oh, we're just going to cancel." And that was my last one, so I didn't go. So I didn't figure I'd be picked by any of the teams in that combine, all the ones I wanted to go to in the West. And sure enough, the 49ers drafted me. So they pick you, and that depth chart, the first year you got there, I, th- I think if you want to say two corners, two safeties, Ronnie Lott, Eric Wright, Carlton Williamson, Dwight Hicks. And that was a group that stuck together for a while to begin with, but that is some high-caliber talent. Well, when I got drafted by the 49ers, I knew about the 49ers. Uh, I was a Ram fan, so I was, it was my nemesis growing up in L.A., but... I knew the 49ers. I knew Ronnie and Eric and all those guys. So I couldn't quite understand why they would pick me as a DB in the in the fourth round when those guys, three of them, had been drafted just two years before. 
And so when I got there, I wasn't quite sure what my role was going to be, but uh, it was a blessing in that I got on a team that was very stable. So they weren't looking to make a lot of moves. We were good in the secondary, and they weren't going to try to make these little micro moves. So I was just instructed by our coaches, fill the role that we have for you, which was the nickel back. Mm -hmm. You keep doing that, and you're going to find a spot with this team. So in seven years of playing, I played behind Dwight Clark or Dwight uh, Hicks for two years, and then Ronnie Lott for five years. I started seven games in seven years, but I was part of a great team. And and over those seven seasons, as some of those guys came and went, and Eric and the Dwight, but Ronnie Lott was the mainstay. Uh, and people, you know, think of him as a great safety. But, he, but when you got there, he was a corner, right? He was a great corner. He was big and strong and fast and physical. But I think uh, he was meant to be a safety. I think the way he played on the corner, they kind of feel, realized that he wasn't going to make it as a corner playing that way. So they, they moved him inside, and the rest is history. He's a Hall of Famer and, you know, to me, one of the very best players to ever play the game. So how tight was that secondary group? And then how close did you become with with Ronnie Lott? I love Ronnie. He's one of my best friends. and one of my dearest mentors. He taught me so much about the game and so much about life. When I got drafted, uh, it was Dwight Hicks was the leader of that secondary, and their moniker was Dwight Hicks and the Hot Licks. And uh, I'm thinking, I don't know, am I a hot lick? You know, how's this gonna, how's this gonna go? So if you wanted to play in that secondary, you had to be physical. And I, I was kind of physical in in college, but at the pro level, I just watched those guys and. They played a, a brand of ball that was uh, very physical. Ronnie and, and Eric Wright and Dwight and Carlton really took me under their wing. I was like their little brother. And um, it, it's emotional at times to think that how my life changed just being part of that team and being part of that secondary. Uh, those guys were all very, very professional. They taught me how to be a pro and they taught me how to have fun. Ronnie's biggest thing was respect. So you, there's a lot of things people play for, but if you don't play for respect of the game, uh, you don't have it going for you. And to this day, we're all very close. We talk a lot in, in, in really tough times and challenging times. We get together. Uh, we help each other out, and I, I can count on those guys like my brothers to this day, and I will for the rest of my life. How do you feel about having gotten seven seasons with the same team and three Super Bowl rings in those seven seasons before your playing days ended? You know, I just really didn't think of it at that. Like I said, we were just trying to string together games. And once we won a Super Bowl in 84, people forget we were a great team in 85, 86, and 87. But we got knocked out early in those years. And we had really good teams. We underperformed in the, in the, in the playoffs. So those were tough years, those three intermarry, inter uh, years between 84 and 88, where a lot of guys got fired. Because they were looking for ways to win championships, not to get knocked out in the first round. So you kind of had your head uh, straight. You want to make sure you keep your head down and not think of too many other things other than do everything you possibly can. There's a big thing with the 49ers is fulfill your role. If we all fulfill our own role that the coach has given us, we'll be successful. Did you all, well, what, what told you it was time, by the way? My legs, um, you know, I, I had signed a two-year contract initially and then another two years. And then finally I had a three-year contract that took me to seven. And, you know, after my sixth year, I, my legs were starting to give out. I had an ACL torn and my left muscles and my quad and ham and calf were really stabilizing my knee. And I just thought I have one more year. And I think I got about one more year left in these tires. And so I went into George Seifert at the beginning of the season. That had been the transition year from Bill Walsh mm -hmm. to George Seifert. And he was my coordinator before he got um, named the head coach. So I went in to see him about a month before the start of the season. I said, George, I just want to come in and let you know that this is going to be my last year. And he said, Tom that's a good thing because <laughs> I think it's going to be your last year. <laughs> and I said, all right, George, if it's going to be up my last year, let's make it a great one. He looked me in the eye, put out his hand, we shook hands and said, let's make it a great one. And it was. And you want another one. Yeah. And then uh, did, you, did you know once you were done as a player, did you have certainty that coaching and or athletics administration was going to be the rest of your life? 
no, working no. life. I, I wanted to go stay in athletics. I was certain that's what I wanted to do. So I came back to BYU to work on my athletic administration uh, master's degree program and further education. But the, the way I came back was to help Coach Dick Felt, who had had a heart attack. And Lavelle called me and asked me to come take care of him for a year. So I coached the DBs in that, in that my first year back, and I was hooked. <laughs> There's no way I was going to be in administration. I'm going to coach. So I was here for two years with BYU, and then I graduated, and then I went to Stanford and then to the 49ers. But I never really thought I'd get into coaching. I wanted to be an administrator. Dick Felt had said, don't be a coach. And I came back to BYU to help him out, which hooked me into being a coach. All right, that's how Tom got hooked. We'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk about uh, that coaching career for Coach Holmo, both at the collegiate and the professional level, and then uh, getting into administration here at BYU. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. We're brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. It's our debut show of the season. More with Tom Holmo coming up next. Listening to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. It is our first show of the season. Welcome back. Chatting with BYU Athletics Director Tom Holmo, BYU Head Coach Kalani Satake. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, we're on the eve of BYU football training camp. The narrative picks up as he's come back to BYU after his 49er playing days, and he's served as a grad assistant coach, and now He's a coach for real. Bill Walsh, who, of course, brought you in to the 49ers as a head coach, now calls on you, and he has changed locations. He's now at Stanford. I wanted to coach full-time. That was going to be my career, but I couldn't get a job. And I had put, I'd put out a, tons of flyers, and I'd get back these r- responses, deer with a line, and my name filled in, Tom, we just don't think you have enough credentials to coach for us. And Oh, it lit a fire in me. And I was just at the point where I was thinking, I don't think I'm going to get a job. You know, this is hard to come by. I didn't realize how tough it was. And the phone rang in the BYU football office, and Shirley Johnson, Lavelle's secretary, answered and said, oh, he's right here. He looks at, she looks at me and says, it's Bill Walsh. So I say, Coach, how you doing? He says, hey – did you get a job yet? Are you still looking for a job? I said, yeah, I'm looking. He goes, why don't you come coach for me? I said, where's that, coach? He goes, I'm coming back to Stanford. I said, okay, let's go. So I, I went home. I ran home, and I told my wife, Lori, I got a job at Stanford. I'm going to coach at Stanford. And she said, what are you going to coach? I said, I don't know. <laughs> he didn't say. He said, well, how much are you going to get paid? I said, I don't know. I didn't even ask. I got a job with Bill. We're going. That's how that started out. You're at Stanford for a couple of seasons, and then the coach for whom you played at the very tail end of your 49ers tenure as a player, George Seifert, brings you back to the pros. Yeah, that was interesting. I was uh, with Coach Wallace for two years, and they were great years. He was in a mentorship role. He had about five 49er former players that were coaching, and we did a good job over there, and it was fun, and I was sure that's what I wanted to do. And then one day I got a phone call from Ray Rhodes, who was uh, my defensive back coach for the 49ers. And I said, what's up, Ray? How you doing? He says, oh, great. Hey, can you want to go to lunch? Let's go to lunch. I said, sure, I'll, I'll meet you. So we went to lunch, and he goes, and I saw Dwayne Board, who was a former teammate of mine and was the defensive line coach for the 49ers at this time. And, and I said, what's going on? He says, hey, I want you to be the defensive back coach for the 49ers. I said, whoa, wait a second. I'm with Bill. I can't, I can't leave here. Yeah. No way. That's the godfather. He said, Mr. D wants you to come back. That's Mr. DeBartolo. And so, uh, man, I just, I was in a quandary. That was probably the toughest decision of my life uh, before, you know, whether I was going to get married or not. And I, I made a decision to go back to the 49ers because it was, it was my team, and I felt terrible that I'd only been with Bill for two years. But, How did he feel about you leaving uh, for it? You know, he gave, gave me some sage advice that said, you know, you're probably not going to like the pro game. He said, I know you, Tom. Hmm. You're one of my boys, and, and you, you're, you're good with the players. And those, those are pros. They're old guys. You have so much of, more of an influence than younger kids. I, I just don't think you're going to like it. He'll do good, but I think you won't like it. 
And it was interesting, Greg, because I thought he was just trying to keep me there and sell me on staying. But after, even about halfway through the first year, I loved the guys I coached. I had Deion Sanders and Merton Hanks and Tim McDonald, Eric Davis, and I loved it. And we won the Super Bowl that year. Steve was the quarterback. But I could tell that it wasn't the same. And it was a, it was a real strain on my family. I wasn't around my wife and three little kids very much at all. And I just couldn't see myself doing that for a long term. But it took till the end of my second year before I had to make a decision that, you know, I really want to go back to college. And this is where I think my my, uh, life will be. And Steve Mariucci brought you back to college. Steve Mariucci. You know, after my second year with the uh, 49ers, the day after we lost to the Packers in a playoff game um, at Candlestick, they upset us. I went in and told uh, uh, Coach Seifert, Coach, I just think it's time for me to make a move. I, I just don't think I, I want to stay on this pro level. And he was very good, and he had been with me for so long and grateful. But um, I went back into my office, and I didn't have a job. And I'd been talking to Pete Carroll, who was our defensive coordinator, and Pete had kind of mentored me through that next that year and said, hey, you know, I understand where you're coming from. But, uh, you know, I, let me help you in any way I can. I went back to my office, and he said, well, what happened? I said, yeah, I did. I, I, I'm not going to coach here next year. And 15 minutes later, my phone rang. <laughs> it was Steve Mariucci. And he goes, hey, what's up, Tom? He goes, you don't know me, but I'm the quarterback coach of the Packers and the new coach at Cal. I hear, you wanna, I hear you're looking to get out of pro and come to college. I said, who told you that? Because uh, I'd never said one word about it to anybody except for really internal and uh, – and he said, oh, just, I heard. And so 15 minutes later, I was talking about going back to college, and I had a, took a job with Steve Mariucci at Cal. We had a good year, went to a bowl game, got us back on the map at Cal. And then we were recruiting. Steve and I were down in L.A., driving around in a car, and the phone rang. And I could see he turned white. <laughs> and he pulled over and said, Tom, you're not going to believe what that was. He said, that was Carmen Policy, president of the 49ers. He said, they want to bring me in as a head coach. I said, what? 49ers? Carmen Policy? He goes, yeah. And he goes, you're coming with me too. I said, I just <laughs> left there last year to come coach with you here at Cal. He goes, I'm going to the 49ers. you got to come with me. I go, Steve, I can't. It's not that I, I, I love those people. It's a great job. But I can't do that. I just, I just left. And he goes, then, then you have to be the head coach at Cal. And I go, well, I can't do that either. I'm not ready for that. But one thing led to another, and I'm a couple of days later, I'm the head coach of Cal. And you are mid-30s. 36. Yeah. Now, I think you said in hindsight, once, once your Cal tenure had ended, you looked back on it with some years of perspective and said, looking back, I may not have been ready for that job at that time. But at that time, you've got, you got to be pumping yourself up saying, I can do this. Certainly. I, th- I think it was a, a lesson for me to learn. I wasn't ready. I thought I was. Um, you know, I had had great success as an assistant coach and been part of great teams and had um, all kinds of uh, ambition and dreams, but maybe too far out of, ahead of myself. And you know, I took that job probably to the chagrin of some people who said, maybe not quite yet. And uh, in time, I, I just wasn't able to get the job done like I should have. And, uh, you know, in a, in a really tough move, I was let go. But I look back and think that they should have made that move. I hadn't given them what I wanted or what they expected. And, and that was a big change in my life. During those five seasons, you played BYU twice. Yeah, we did. And uh, w- the first one was against Lavelle. I remember yeah. walking across the field at Lavelle Edwards Stadium. It was Cougar Stadium at the time. <laughs> right. And I'm thinking, this is unreal, surreal. I'm going to go over and shake hands with Lavelle Edwards. That's my coach. I, I've never rooted against Lavelle, <laughs> and now I want to kill him today. <laughs> it was a, just such a strange feeling, and it was a tough game, and it was a close. They were good. They were very good, and we were kind of trying to make our way. So they got the best of us for those two years. Once your Cal tenure ended, 
Now what? You've talked about all these different experiences where you'll make a decision and then the phone rings. But this time, how was it different? Well, this was a time where I had a little bit of time. I, I, I had about a little bit of time on my contract, less than a year. But I thought, you know, I need to cool off a little bit. It was a hard time for my my wife and my children. We were struggling and a lot of, lot of pressure on the on the fam. And so I kind of backed away a little bit and just spent a lot of time with my family thinking I'm going to wait for the right job to get back into coaching. And I figured I could, you know, maybe find a good college job as an assistant or maybe, maybe even go back into pros. That's what I was thinking. I got a call, another telephone call from Lavelle Edwards once again. And he said, he said, Tom, um, I want you to come back to BYU. Now's the time. And what a lot of people don't know is he had asked me to come back to BYU twice, but it was just bad timing. I couldn't do it. And I had asked him, hey, do you got anything back at BYU? And it was bad timing for him, and it didn't work. So this time he said, hey, it's been about four times where we've tried to hook up. Let's make it work. But he said, you know, I know the people here, and, and they were trying to pick up a little of the fundraising. I think you'd be a great fundraiser, and they're looking to open up a d- director of athletic development. And so I came back to BYU thinking, you know what? BYU is a place where I've always had solid ground, a really firm foundation. And it was a great place for me to do my undergraduate work and play. It was a great place for me to bring my family back and get my master's degree and coach. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe in it again. I'm going to come back this time and get my feet on solid ground and make a decision. I, I really had no intentions other than to come back, do a great job for a few years and find out what the next move would be. You, as the AD, are, are among things uh, most known for the two hires made on your watch that you had great involvement in and in bringing in both Bronco Mendenhall and Dave Rose. At around the same time, in if not identical, similar circumstances of trying to rebuild and finding two guys that would last a long time and be very successful during that time. How integral do you see that that whole time period as being where you're brought in as the AD, those hires are made, and then things turn out to be really good for quite a long time? Well, I think it was providential. There, there's no question that I had blessings from heaven because at the time, when you're an athletic director and you have to make two hires of your head football coach and basketball coach at the same time, it's a big move. And we had two assistant coaches here on campus that we went with, and that was – they were unproven as head coaches. Dave, of course, had been a head high school coach and a head JC coach, um, but Bronco hadn't. And uh, we, there was just, it was just the right thing. They had the right uh, attitude and spirit, and they had the right background. They had, I had been able to observe them as assistant coaches, and from my experience, I could sense that they were ready to make that next step. And I looked back just recently. I was looking at a, going through some papers, and I saw this cut picture of a magazine where the three of us were on the cover that first year and thought, whoa, look at those youngsters. And I, I was just so blessed to have Bronco and Dave for, you know, 11 years with both and 13 with Dave so far. So that was very fortuitous. Well, hopefully listeners have been able to get a sense of just how um how much of a preparation your lifetime of experiences have given you for the job you now have. And as you look at the challenges you now face, there's almost nothing you haven't seen uh, to this point, right? (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, Greg, the world of college athletics or professional athletics is an ever-changing landscape. And I I use that that phrase or metaphor a lot, but it is interesting how – and I think in life, you just have to be able to adapt and you have to be able to change. And I do believe that I have been prepared through my experiences from little, as a little leaguer all the way through high school, college, pro, coaching, playing uh, for this moment. But um, there's times ahead that I don't really know how they're going to go. I don't know what's coming. I mean, the last couple of years, the legislation, all the legal issues that have come up with the NCAA – I would meet with our legal counsel here on BYU's campus maybe once a month. Now we meet once a week, hmm. once a week, where we're talking about things, and maybe sometimes it's multiple. But I think that there's so many things about the student athlete welfare, and that's a big thing, and that's, that's one of my strengths. So I think, uh, at least for the near future, um, it's, it's time for me to, to kick it, keep going. But there will come a time where. It'll be, uh, it'll be better 
for someone else to come in and take the reins or the baton figuratively and, and go on to another, a new stage. When the time is right, change can be good. And I'm just going to, I'm going to go hard and I'm going to go strong. I'm going to go smart. I've got a lot of great people around me. It's a very, very important time for BYU athletics right now, particularly football and basketball. And I'm super excited to see what this year is going to bring. It's a critical year. I, I love this time of the year. When I watch ESPN and I see the NFL players reporting to training camp, my heart starts to beat a little bit faster. And my wife starts to realize, uh-oh, here comes football season. <laughs> because I just changed a little bit. I think it's in my DNA that it's time to play. It's time to go. It's time to fight. And I feel that right now. I'm an old man. I'm 58 years old. And it's, I can't play anymore. But if you don't think that it's not in my head and my heart, you're crazy. And I cannot wait to get out there and watch these boys play against Arizona in that opener. Now, there's a lot of weeks of practice coming up that are going to be so crucial to the success of this team. But I'm excited by what I've seen this offseason but I'm not going to get ahead of myself. There's it's a very difficult schedule with a lot of moving parts in key positions, with key coaches, and it's just exciting. And if you can't get excited about this, it's going to be hard to get excited about anything. Tom, pleasure as always. All right, that is Tom Homo. Coming up next on the eve of day one of BYU football training camp, I'm joined by BYU head football coach Kalani Satake. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Kalani Satake is next. Stay with us. Catching Up with the Cougars brought to you by BYU Alumni. BYU Alumni chapters help students in need and spread the influence of the Y around the world. Stay connected for good and find your chapter at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. You're listening to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Well, when Kalani Satake was named the 14th head coach in BYU football history, it marked a major moment in the Cougar football program. For the first time since the days of Eddie Kimball in the 1940s, a former Cougar player would now be the head coach, a self-professed BYU fan long before he was a BYU player. Kalani Satake was born in Tonga, lists hometowns in both Provo and Hawaii, and went to high school in both Provo and Missouri. He started his BYU education and career in 1994, and after a freshman season in which he played every game, he served a two-year LDS church mission to Oakland, returning to play for Lavelle Edwards and the Cougars from 1997 through 2000, Lavelle's final season. His 1997 campaign was cut short due to injury, but in each of the next three years, he was BYU's starting fullback and became a team captain to culminate his Cougar playing career. His coaching career began immediately after school. Kalani's first year out of college saw him coaching the DBs and special teams at Eastern Arizona. Then he returned to BYU as a grad assistant, working with the defense. Then it was back down south to southern Utah for two seasons with the running backs, O-line, and tight ends, followed by a decade at Utah where he coached linebackers and was later elevated to defensive coordinator and assistant head coach. After leaving Utah for the defensive coordinator and assistant head coaching post at Oregon State for a season, Kalani Satake again returned to BYU as head coach in 2016, and tomorrow opens training camp to start his third season as head coach. Kalani Satake, welcome in Behind the Mic. Thanks for having me on, Greg. You are so much a product of your heritage and your personal journey that has hit uh, different parts of the nation and the world. How do you describe your upbringing? Well, I think it's, uh, <laughs> I, I am, I've said it before, I am the product of other people's hard work and sacrifice. And so I am uh, where I'm met today because people cared about me, invested time and, and energy in me, and uh, have really helped me become the person that I am today. And so uh, I've really done nothing without uh, other people's help. And, and so I'm really uh, thankful for everyone that's been involved in my life, all the mentors and and leaders and family members and everyone that's been there for me from day one. And so um, just uh, hoping hoping I can make them happy and make them, make them proud of what 
uh, their hard work and sacrifices have done towards me as a person since I was a young child into even now as, a, as an older uh, middle-aged man. We just got off vacation with my family in Hawaii, and I and I showed them places that I grew up at and where I learned how to shoot baskets and play <laughs> football and things like that and, and uh, play basketball and all the sports that we we, we knew in Laie and really thankful at the vo- the voyage that I had as a, as a young man, a child to a young man to an adult, and now as a father and as a husband, and it worked out way better than I ever <laughs> imagined when I was a child. I mentioned Tonga and Hawaii, a Provo and Missouri, and there are other parts in between as well. Where does Laie fit into your personal timeline? Right after born in Tonga, we moved to um, Laie right, right after. I mean, I was a couple months old, and so um, uh, ever since I was a little baby that's uh, that's all I knew was home was going to elementary school there in Laie and, and um you know unfortunately our family had a uh, we had a kind of a a huge obstacle with my parents divorce and so uh, how old that, were you when that happened at six and then from then on I just moved to various places uh from Laie to California to Utah and all over the place and we just me and my siblings we bounced around quite a bit and never really together until we settled in Utah when I was nine, nine or 10 years old around that time. And so we still went, we still consider Laia and, and Provo home because we split, split time there. And after that, I, you know, learning football and playing here in Provo, right in the backyard of BYU, it's been awesome. It was going to the games and all that. It was a cool experience. Um, then going to high school in, in St. Louis, Missouri, you know, we went out there, I went to Kirkwood High and played there for two years and attended two years and uh, I know this sounds crazy but I was here going to every BYU camp and and trying to get um trying to get Lavelle and everyone to look at me (laughs) since I was 10 I was was trying to get them to look at me and and just just recognize me and hopefully recruit me and it took me going out to St. Louis Missouri in order for that to happen you know, my father chose a school for me, Kirkwood High, that he thought the head coach was kind of an old school guy, Dale Collier, and he thought that that he would be a good a good fit for me. And I had a lot of other coaches that wanted me to play for them, and, and he was the only one that was real and that said he's going to make me work, and my dad liked that. And so I went there, and we had a great team, and, and um, the rest is history. So you talk about your dad. When your parents divorced, at that point, you were kind of following dad after that, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, and so my... um. My mom moved back to Australia, and um, and and my dad basically became a single father and took yeah. care of us and the four of us that that of, of the group of four you were the oldest, right? Yes, yeah. I was. Yeah. Okay, and so um, yeah, and, th- and with the four that were at home. Yeah. So. so as as the oldest of that group, let's say of that four mm-hmm. person group, four sibling group, and knowing that your dad was working hard to try and probably, you know, keep things together and make ends meet and everything. Did you see your role at the time as something more than just an older brother? Did you feel a heavier role? Yeah, well, I, I, did, I look back at it now, and, and, and it's so different than I expect from my oldest, you know. And, um, but but it's it's what the expectations that my father had of me when, when I was really young, you know, and that was to protect the kids and uh, make sure that everything was taken care of. And I, I learned to cook really as a, at a young age and <laughs> Not really that 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 good, you know. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't a great cook, but I learned how to do little things, and I, I grew up pretty pretty quick, you know. And, and it was a it wasn't anything really to complain about. It was just what life was, and my three younger siblings were depending on me. So you know, my dad expected me to. It actually got me in shape. That at one time I would have to walk him to elementary school and then run from the elementary school to my middle school in order to make it in time and so I would always make it a competition and try to sprint every every morning um you know about I think it was three quarters of a mile and that's uh yeah I probably need to do that more nowadays but <laughs> were you were you a bigger kid growing up no I was always smaller and my and I my dad is a tough guy I, I think if people know my dad he's really tough but he's got a kind heart and he'll spend um he'll spend time with people he it's what I always loved about him is that he knows everyone and he'll he'll spend time with them just sit there and spend time with them i thought it was one of the most impressive things i've ever seen as a young man i remember one time we were getting ready to take a family picture and this is not long ago maybe a decade or so and we were waiting for him to show up and all of our our me and my siblings and all of our kids and pops isn't there and he shows up an hour later and we're like dude where have you been and he's like oh i was watching so-and-so's son 
he was playing a little league baseball game and they were <laughs> winning and I didn't want to miss the end. And so we're sitting like, well, we don't even know who you're talking about, you know, but he does things like that. He goes to Jiffy Lube and takes donuts to people that change oil in his, in his car and um, he just loves people. And then, uh, but he's also a, a, a guy that yet is really harsh and knows how to raise people and is really strict. And, um, you know, he trained me since I was little. So when I got to BYU, the stuff that we did here was nothing compared to what he trained me with. I, I was running these stairs <laughs> down here. Um, a lot of the players will tell you that, that like Peter Tuipolotu and all those guys that have come back, they remember me me running the stairs every day. My dad would come to the here, and 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 it's still a pain in the butt, right? The the stairs right here that goes from the from the RB up to the to Out campus. To campus yeah. yeah, and I was running that when I was when I was twelve, and, and doing it every day. It wasn't a big deal. My dad expected a lot from me, and he expected me to be great, you know. And, and uh, I I I did not want to let him down, and yeah. So it was just a lot of demands that he had on me, but not out of control and so I was always I'm going back to when I was small I was always really small and I had to play in, in a, a lightweight group and people were always telling me that I was too small to play in in even that group huh. and so my dad signs these waivers and signs me up for the heavyweight group which is two cl- two he- two weight classes higher and said you're going to learn how to run if you go to this lightweight group they're going to put you at the line and I want you to run hmm. I said okay so I went I went up there and ran Ran for my life, you know, and, and uh, taught me a lot of things. How uh, big guys, you, you can win with leverage, and you can win uh, with hard work. And so that happened. And then I got to St. Louis, Missouri, and I went through this growth spurt. And they were telling me I'm too big to play running back now. They wanted to be, move me to line. And my dad said, "No, that's not going to work. He's going to play running back." And so you know, look look later on. Now I, I went from being too small to too big, <laughs> and. Um, you know, I was just never a great athlete. I think I was just always willing to work hard, and my, I get that from my father. I still see your dad, Tom, at almost every event I see you at. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's obviously a really central and important figure in your life, and his support is very tangible because he's always around. Yeah, and he's, he's uh, man, I, I have a lot of admiration for him. So now as a father myself and uh and a husband, I, I I look at the things that he's done, and I've been really impressed with it. You know, you don't understand it when you're a kid. Um, I just I love him. You know, he's a not a perfect man, but man, he was a perfect father. You know, and uh, that and that's what I needed. You know, and so none of us are perfect, but I, I think that he's got the best heart and the best intentions, and you could really work with that. Kirkwood High School, just out of St. Louis, I guess. And this was after your days at Timpview, so you actually played high school here locally and mm-hmm. and then back there. All right before we had to break here, at what point did you realize that, that football was a big enough part of your life that you could do it at the next level collegiately, and was BYU always a dream for you in that respect? Yeah, that was the goal. I mean, I, I, when I went to the Kirkwood High, I was getting offers. We had really a really good team, a lot of... Colleges were checking out the, my teammates when I was a junior, and so um, I was getting offers early in my junior year, and that's when I, I, I always knew I was going to play college football, you know, and it's weird. I, I only had one goal, and that was BYU, and it didn't really matter that Hayden Fry was talking to me or Lou Holtz or Tom Osborne. It's when Lavelle walked into my home is when I felt it, and, and it was great. And, you know, BYU was the last school to offer me, and hmm. and that, that's all I cared about, you know, so – yeah, that's it. Was only one goal, and I, I know there's not a lot of kids out there that that feel that way, but there are. Hmm. There's quite a, a few, and and um, you know, and I was just one of those guys that I think BYU had a huge impact on me when I was a young man, and that's where I wanted to be. We're chatting with Kalani Satake, BYU head football coach. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel, brought to you by the BYU Store. Coming up after the break, uh, Kalani's impressions of Lavelle Edwards, and then uh, Kalani's playing days at BYU and the coaching days after life as a Cougar. It's all coming up. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel, brought to you by the BYU Store. Welcome back to Behind the Mic, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Here's your host, Craig Rubel. It is our debut show of the season here in 2018. Show number one will be on the air every Wednesday from 6 to 7 Mountain Time through the month of March. 
And it is a football-heavy month here on the program as we get set for BYU training camp and the season opener September 1st at Arizona. And indeed, uh, tomorrow, first practices for the BYU Cougars. Head coach, the Cougars, Kalani Satake, our guest in studio. And uh, we left before the break by uh, talking about your high school career leading into your days at BYU. And I thought we would talk about just impressions of Lavelle Edwards, who brought you to BYU and then became a big part of your life. Yeah, a great mentor for me, you know, and, and uh, it's been gone way too early for me. You know, I, I was thankful that I had him for a year uh, here as, as, a, as the head coach, and, and um, but really spent a lot of time with him and Patty um, in that year. I met with him once a week, and we talked about a lot of different things, not always about football, but uh, some concerns that, that he had, you know, and that um, with what with the direction the program was going and everything, it was just nice to be able to sit and have him talk um, freely with me about um, about the program and things like that and what he expected. And, and so I uh, got a lot of good information from him, but also got a lot of um, great advice, you know, on, and most of it was, was handling family. Hmm. And um, I look at all his children and the success that they have in life, and, and, and I think it's a, uh, it's a beautiful uh, tribute to him and Patty. And so um, one of the gr- best uh, words of advice he gave me was, was really listen to my wife. And I, I think I, I heard the same thing from my father, you know. <laughs> and so uh, um, it's been really good for me to have a wonderful wife that, that is uh, so uh, supportive and not always just about football. You know, my, I think, um, I mean, my wife has her frustrations with football as well, but um, most most of the things she talks about is really about my well-being and who I am and, and really gets me to think clearly. I, I, I would not be here if it, were, if it weren't for my wife. Lavelle was really great about me leaning on my wife because he did the same thing with Patty, yeah. you know. So in every way, you look at what he's done as a coach and it's not even close to the things that he's done as a father and as a, as a husband. And so hopefully I can, I can get a little bit of that. Well, your wife's name is Timberly. Mm-hmm. Let's name your, your kids as well right now. Yeah, Timberly is my wife, and she's from Florida. She's from um, a small town in Dundee in Florida. It's in Polk County. Uh, for some reason, everyone in Florida names their county that they're from, and so she's a Polk County girl, but she's, <laughs> it's close to Winter Haven and Haines City. Um, but we met here at BYU, and we have three lovely children. My oldest is Skye. She's 14 right now. Um, I make the joke that she can date in five more years, you know. <laughs> Just so, wait till she's 19 is all. Yeah. <laughs> Go on a mission, come back, and then we'll <laughs> think about it. No, um, no, she's 14, and she's wonderful, and uh, and she's into art and, and, and uh, theater and things like that, and she's super tall. You know, I'm trying to get her more into sports, but... I really want her to find her passion and to work with it. And then Sadie is 11 years old, and she's a dancing. She dances all over the place. She she doesn't stop dancing. I think my wife and I joke because when we when she was a little baby, um, she would cry, and the only thing that would get her to stop crying was to show her the video of Beyonce single lady then dancing. <laughs> and I thought, this is this how it's supposed to be with a one year old, you know? But uh, so yeah, she's been dancing like crazy and hasn't stopped. And she enjoyed being at the Cougarettes camp with Jody Maxfield and the group. And they did a wonderful job with her. She dances at the dance club and loves it, you know. So she kind of sparks me to get my dance moves up a little bit more. And then we have our baby. He's my son. His name is KK. He's named after me, Kelao Kalani. So and we call him KK for short. He goes by Kelao also at school. And he's uh, eight years old and he's all about mommy right now. So I'm I'm okay if he's mama's boy because. Mm-hmm. You know he's gonna be he's gonna be something. I don't know what he's gonna be yet, and not trying to throw football in his face yet. I kind of you know glanced over your playing days. They did go from '94 to 2000 with a mission in between, and and there was a part of a fifth season. You got four full, and then part of a fifth because of an injury. The mission was it always on your radar when you came to BYU? Not really. I was so hooked on just playing in the NFL, you know, and. And, um, and then you got to play as a freshman. Yeah, and I played right away as yeah. a freshman, and, and it was looking good, you know. And, and um, we were going to have, I think, I, I think um, things were looking up, you know. I, I was blocked for Jamal and playing with Hema and all those guys, and, and it was and Mark Yatawai was on the team too, or and the running back core. And I think we we're going to be really good, you know. And so I, I was, uh, I mean, you know, Ronnie Jenkins was going to be coming soon, and, and Brian McKenzie. So it's it's kind of like okay. Maybe maybe this this is going to be really good for me, you know, and then we'll see what happens. And 
I, I, I knew I was going to be a fullback. I mean, I, whenever you go from 210 pounds and then doing two a days, you're 230 at the end of it. That's, <laughs> that means that you're going to be a fullback. And then, so I played fullback and loved it. And, um, I don't know. just being at BYU. There's a lot of people that, that were going on missions, you know, and, and Lavelle challenged me to go on a mission, and he he pulled me in and just said, "Hey, I think you'd be a great missionary." And this is for from a guy that didn't serve a mission, you know. And and I'm sitting there going, "Okay, well, never really thought about it, especially since football is going so well." Um, and just couldn't stop thinking about it after that, you know. And it was always in my mind. And then I decided to make the move and go on my mission, and definitely the hardest thing I've ever done, but the best. You know, I, I look back at my um, um, my family, my wife, and my three kids, and my mission's right up there. You know, just, it, it's so memorable because it's so hard. And that's what we're trying to really bring back what BYU football is about. It's it's, it's hard, you know, and, and that doesn't make it bad. <laughs> the fact that something's difficult. I think everyone remembers their mission because it was so hard and it was so rigorous. And it's just something that, that you you really could only do once at that time, you know, and so, um, and we're trying to kind of have that reflect into foot into football and being a football player at BYU, and and the only difference is that you actually get to date and watch TV and have entertainment, and so <laughs> it won't be as hard as the mission, but man, I loved it, and I love just being about others and uh, losing myself in the work and and having great people in mission field, other missionaries that I got to lean on and see how much how much change you're making in people's lives and and uh, it was the best thing for me and I hope every young man and every young woman mm. is out there can have have that experience of serving a mission. After you served you you did get 3 years as a starting fullback for Lavelle and one of the neatest things about your playing career is that your playing career ended the same night Lavelle's coaching career ended at BYU, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, and that was our our last game and a memorable game, you know, um up in Salt Lake City. Yeah, and and you know, it was it wasn't a great season my senior year. I mean, I think we finished 6 and 6, right? And, and then you had back then you had to go 7 games to go to a bowl game, but um it was such a cool like now that I look back at it, I was really impressed with the way Lavelle handled himself during that year. A lot of ups and downs, but he was always consistent in the way he treated people and the way that he had a wonderful sense of humor when things didn't go well, you know, it's just like, um, he just saw the different side of things and it was so cool for me to, to watch and to see it first, like, had that front row seat to it. I was a captain for him. So I got to see the way he really truly was when things weren't going well. And even at the game, if you look at that, that BYU Utah game, um, you look at the way he, he was handling himself. He was fine. He was okay. We were panicked. We were like, this is the last game for Lavelle. We, we have to make something happen. And he was just so calm. And, man, I've been really impressed with that. But I, I don't know if I, I'm that – I can't be like that, right? And, and he never asked me to. He just said, be yourself. But, but what I can be is try to be consistent like he was and try to give these young men a great experience as being a football player at BYU because it – It'll last a lifetime, and I'm living proof of that. I mentioned off the top of the interview kind of your resume and how after playing at BYU, you've coached many places, including coming back to BYU as a grad assistant. But whether at, uh, at the JC level or as a grad assistant, Southern Utah, many years at Utah, Oregon State, when you take all that, all that as, as a totality and then you find out that the BYU job is opened up and they're going to talk to you about it, did you feel in your heart, did you have the confidence that, my time is now, and, and this is where I'm supposed to be. To be honest, um, no. I, I I knew I really wanted to be here. You know, um, man, I just I love BYU so much. I just really wanted to be here, and I didn't know if it was going to work. And I thought that, uh, you know, everyone's talking about Kenny Nimatololo at that time, and, and I love Ken. I mean, he's a good friend of mine, so I was really happy for him. But, you know, selfishly, you're like, man, I want that job. I really want it. And and my agent was prepping me for other opportunities that were out there, and um, and there comes my wife, and she's just like, "Hey, just let's 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 go after this," you know. And and what I thought was probably going to be just a, a token interview, um, my wife said that that much more has been gained and won in, in lesser meetings than this that you're about to have. And so she gave me a lot of confidence, and we prepped for the interview. And she she had the wonderful idea of stop thinking about yourself and think about BYU, you know, and 
what we could do, what we could bring to the table for BYU. So the mindset was going to go in there and say, hey, this is what we think BYU could do differently and make, maybe make a better experience for the players. And um, and, and we went in with that attitude and look at what happened, you know. And, and it was all because my wife, and that's number one reason. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I'm sitting here as the head coach. And so um, she's and she's got great expectations for me as a head coach here at BYU. And um, she has great plans, and they all seem to come true, you know. And so, even in the in the difficult year we had last year, she's been strong. And so, that's my rock, and and we're gonna go after this. And really looking forward to the season, and 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 uh, making sure we we match her expectations. Hmm. Through 26 games, you've won 13, lost 13, right around where Lavelle was, really, through two years at BYU. He got off to a slow start in Season 3, then things kind of really took off and they never looked back. Did you look back at the way things kind of began for Lavelle, see some parallels, see some similarities, and know that this is a long-term deal and there was time to get this thing going exactly the way you want it to go, like Lavelle did? Yeah, and and it was great having him, you know, bring me back to earth after the first year. You know, it, it was it was when I talked about his 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 concerns, they were really about the program and and a lot of different parts of it. And so, um, really had this year now now, and he's gone now. So this is kind of where I had a lot of people that have been connected with him in the past that, that have given me some really good advice too. You know, but. Um, the one thing that he's always said is just do you, just do you and be yourself, and so I'm I'm doing that. And uh, I, I obviously I'm not very patient, you know. I'm just like every fan out there. I am a fan. I want us to win now. You know what I mean? And and that's the plan. Kalani, finally, how excited are you to be with your team again and know that tomorrow, Thursday, coaches and players are back on the field together with a season opener a month away ready to go to work. I mean, we've been working so hard for this uh, since since we got everybody here, you know. And so uh, since spring ball has ended, our players look different. Uh, we feel different. We've turned the page. We're looking for this new this new uh, season coming up and really want to show everybody all the hard work and sacrifice that has been made. And, and uh, I wish it was the game, first game was here. It's, it's not here soon enough. Well, I'm as eager as you are, and they are. Kalani, thanks so much for coming in. Great being with you. Great. Thank you very much. All right, that is BYU head football coach Kalani Satake. We're back to wrap up our season debut of Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Back after this. Our thanks to Kalani Sitake, along with Tom Homo. My interview with Kalani tonight was our Catching Up with the Cougars segment, brought to you by BYU Alumni. Want to help BYU students but don't know how? You can with BYU Alumni Chapters. Find the chapter that fits you at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. This has been the inaugural edition of Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store for this 2018 season. Thanks once again to BYU Head Football Coach Kalani Satake and BYU AD Tom Homo for joining us this week. Next week on the program, it's an all-record-setting running back edition of the show. We'll be visiting with Harvey Unga, who's a current graduate assistant coach for BYU, of course, former BYU back and great back. And before him, it was Curtis Brown, Curtis Brown, and Harvey Unga next Wednesday right here. Thanks to Terry South, our coordinating producer on the show. Our associate producer is Cole Wissinger. Our thanks as well to interns Blake McMullen and Lindsay Peterson. We'll talk to you next Wednesday on Behind the Mic. Good night. You have been listening to Behind the Mic with the voice of the Cougars, Greg Rubel. Brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Listen to the podcast at BYUradio.org.